This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 20th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about how mind reading is like print reading. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. How well can we see into the minds of others? Does it vary by where we are from? I spoke with Cecilia Hayes about her work understanding mind reading as a learned skill that varies from culture to culture. Our article says that we learn about minds. We learn to read minds in the same way that we learn to read print. So we don't learn about thoughts and feelings by introspection or by testing out our own theories of what makes people tick. Instead, we are instructed as children by adults about the way the mind works. When I hear mind reading, I think of science fiction, you know, I can see into your, into your mind. But that's not exactly how you're using it here. What does mind reading mean in this context? No, that's right. There's, there's nothing spooky about um, the way we're using the term mind reading. It's something that most adults do a lot of the time. Whenever we try to understand what somebody else is doing by assuming that they have certain thoughts and feelings. So say, for example, you were to pause unexpectedly in our conversation. I might ask myself, why is Sarah doing that? And I might infer that you think that I haven't finished speaking and you want me to continue. So I would be explaining your behavior with reference to thoughts and desires in your head. That would be mind reading. And so this seems like it would be a very, very useful tactic to have in everyday life. Yes, all the evidence suggests that we use it a lot of the time, perhaps not quite as much as people used to think we were using it, but it's very important for us to be able to do mind reading. It's one of the things which makes us distinct from other animals as a species, and it's essential for 
many areas of human life like the law and negotiating agreements and deciding what behavior is permissible and what isn't. Hmm. You compare mind reading to print reading throughout this article. What are some of the basic similarities and differences for those two things? Well, at the most basic level, they both involve getting meaning from signs. So in the case of print reading, the signs are typically ink marks on paper, and the meaning relates to objects and events in the world. In the case of mind reading, the signs are things like facial expressions and body movements and the things that people say, and their meaning relates to what's going on in the other person's head. So, say for example, I see a poster inscribed with the words concert tonight, that tells me what's going to be happening this evening. Mm -hmm. And if I see a face inscribed with a smile, um, it tells me typically that the person is happy or amused. So those are some pretty general similarities. Are there more specific things that are going on that are similar between reading print and reading minds? Oh, yes, there are a lot of very specific similarities. So for example, both of them show cortical specialization. There's areas of the brain which are specialized for print reading, and there are different areas of the brain which are specialized for mind reading. And they're both subject to developmental disorders. So people with dyslexia find it very hard to learn to read print, and people with autism find it very hard to learn to read minds. And those two similarities, cortical specialization and developmental disorders, are very important because the fact that there's a special area of the brain for mind reading and that autism impairs mind reading has been mistaken for a sign that mind reading is inborn and genetically inherited. But the comparison with print reading makes it clear that you know, it's not a sign of that because print reading, we know that that is not inborn and genetically inherited. I mean, humans have only been readers for five to 6,000 years. Most people agree that's not long enough for us to have developed inborn mechanisms for print reading. So those similarities make it clear that mind reading need not be inborn. There are some examples of mind reading seen in infants. And how is that what they, we see there different from what adults do? Well, it's certainly true that infants pay really close attention to people from birth and that by the time they're about one year old, they can predict people's movements. So, for example, if an adult begins a movement that the infant has seen before, say reaching for a cup, the infant's gaze, their eyes, move from the hand to the cup before the hand reaches the cup. The infant knows where the hand is going. But in our article, we argue that although they can predict behavior, infants are not capable of explicit mind reading. So I think that infants predict where an action is going using the same mechanisms that they use to predict where a rolling ball is going. These are mechanisms of statistical and associative learning which are evolutionarily ancient. We share them with a broad range of other species, other animals. So they're great at predicting behavior, but they don't make those predictions by ascribing internal causes, thoughts and feelings, 
to the actor or to the ball. I really liked that example you talked about in your article about what would happen to a child that somehow survived alone on an island. Mm. And what would they know about their own mind and the mind of others? Can you talk a little bit about that? Of course, this is, this is pure speculation. Right. Uh, but if it was a child alone on a desert island that did somehow miraculously manage to survive, then they might well have sensations. There would be what we think of as internal conscious events. But our view implies that they wouldn't conceptualize or think about those experiences as beliefs and desires, thoughts and feelings. Similarly, if there was a group of infants that somehow managed miraculously <laughs> to survive on a, on a desert island, I mean, they would have the challenge of predicting each other's behavior. But our view would suggest that in just one or a few generations, there's no way that they would come up with our conceptualization of the mind that that would take many generations for them to develop their own distinctive theory of mind. Really interesting. What's behind that is the idea that mind reading is learned and that you also mention in your article that there's this interaction between culture and mind reading. How does where we are from and how we are raised impact our abilities in this area? There's now a, a lot of studies which have looked really closely at what adults say to children about the mind in everyday situations. So it looks like from that research that adults explicitly teach children about the mind. They teach them a culture-specific theory of how the mind works. That's what we learn at our mother's knee. And then when we become parents, we pass on that theory of mind to our own children. And what are some of the differences that have been seen between cultures and the theory of mind? Yeah, we're only just beginning to understand this, but the emerging research is really fascinating. So there are plenty of signs, first of all, that cultures vary very widely in the importance that they assign to mental states rather than situations as causes of behavior. So in individualist cultures, such as those of the United States and Europe, we see mental states as very important. But in some other places, like China and Iran, situations are regarded as at least equally important. So what I do is seen to be determined less by what I think and what I want than by my position and status in a social group. Also, cultures vary a lot in whether they see them as being governed by natural or supernatural laws. So, for example, there's a Micronesian culture that believes that my emotions can affect the health of my relatives, even if there's no physical or communicational contact between me and my relatives. So that would be an example of what we would see as supernatural causation of mental states. Why is theory of mind and understanding mind reading an important area to study? I think these questions are really important because mind reading is at the root of what makes us human, what makes us different from all other animals. And it's really important to work out how we come to be this way. Is this something that we genetically inherit? Is it something that 
the members of individual cultures have come up with a theory that they've come up with and that they pass on from one generation to the next. So it's a fundamentally important question about human nature, which also has implications for understanding developmental disorders such as autism and for education in general. We need to use theory of mind to educate our children, not only about the mind, but about a huge range of other topics. So when a child learns from their parents how to represent the minds of others, it is, as we say in the article, a cultural gift that goes on giving. After that capacity has been acquired, it enables that person to pass on what they know about a whole range of topics to others. Cecilia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Cecilia Hayes and Chris Firth write a review on mind reading in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the passing of the passenger pigeon. The passenger pigeon the last of which died out in 1914, is often used as a symbol of what unthinking humans can do to animals, basically make them go extinct. Now some researchers are looking to take us humans off the hook for the death of the passenger pigeon. So Dave, can you take us back to the time when these birds were in the billions? That's right. And uh, I want to say that we're not exactly off the hook, but maybe a little less on the hook than we were before, potentially. So it turns out that passenger pigeons used to be actually the most abundant bird in the world. There were three to five billion of them in North America alone. They had these enormous flocks that were as wide as a mile and many miles long. So a very, very populous bird. They also became very popular as the targets of human hunting. It was a lot of cheap meat flying up there in the sky, not just for humans, but for livestock as well. So what was the thinking at the time about why these birds went extinct? Well, the simple thinking was that it was just a matter of overhunting, that humans were killing so many of these birds that they decimated the population and the bird eventually went extinct. Sounds reasonable. The U.S. population was growing. The birds were being hunted. Why any doubt? Well, some researchers had their doubts because you can imagine, how do you go from three to five billion birds to zero birds over the course of a little over 100 years? Some researchers had suspected that there may be something else going on. In this new study, researchers gather DNA from passenger pigeon samples, which are still available at some museums around the world. And they compared that to the DNA of the passenger pigeon's closest modern relative, which is the domestic pigeon. And by looking at these differences in the DNA, the researchers can actually tell how healthy the populations of the passenger pigeons were in the past. The more genetic diversity you have tends to be the more healthy a population is, the bigger the numbers have. And what the researchers found that was really fascinating is that they saw these really big spikes and troughs in passenger pigeon population where there could have been fluctuations of up to a thousand-fold differences in how many birds were around at any given point over time. Do they have any idea what might have caused these ups and downs in their population? Well, the researchers say these massive fluctuations aren't really typical for any other species. They think these birds were highly dependent on the availability of acorns, which is really their primary food source. 
So if you had years where acorns were in short supply, you had a lot of these birds dying and vice versa. So is this path to extinction, the path that the passenger pigeon took, something that we should look out for in other species? Well, what it does suggest is that although humans likely played a very large role in the extinction of these birds, that there may have been other environmental factors as well, and we should take those into account when we look at other endangered species. Next up, we have a story on fishing spiders. As soon as I started reading this story, I immediately went to Google to look up fishing spider pictures, and I saw a lot of slightly disturbing images of spiders near the water, but no images of an actual spider grappling with an actual fish. But what's amazing to me is that the researchers took a similar approach and they got a lot more, they got a lot better results. Did you take a look online, Dave? I haven't looked online yet, but if you go to the website, we've actually got a really cool slideshow that will show you pictures of spiders actually catching and devouring fish, if that's your bag. But yes, the researchers took that approach. And the reason that the researchers took this approach of going onto Google and looking for images is that it had been known for a while that there are a few species of spiders around the world that do catch fish, which is actually pretty remarkable. These aren't giant swordfish that they're catching. They're more kind of small minnow type fish, but still impressive that a spider could catch and eat a fish. The researchers in this study suspected there was a lot more of this going on, and there just wasn't a whole lot of research research out there. And the problem is when you don't have a lot of research, you don't have a lot of papers, hence the researchers turn to Google Images. And they, being professionals, actually found a lot more pictures of fish-eating spiders than you did, Sarah. (laughs) So I was kind of surprised to learn that spiders have such a varied diet. And looking at the pictures, it looks like the spiders just hang out by the water. How do they actually grab up a fish? Well, it turns out it looks like what they're doing is they feel for vibrations in the water, just like some species of spiders feel for vibrations in their webs to know whether they've caught an insect. And what they sometimes pick up is they pick up the vibrations that fish cause when they swim through the water. And sometimes they're catching fish instead of the other things they prey on, whether it be insects, or sometimes some of these species even eat frogs, snails, even birds and bats. So (laughs) these spiders aren't terribly discriminating. And once they get the fish or one of these other larger animals, what do the spiders do with them? Well, what they do is a little bit gruesome. They actually drag the fish to dry land, and they can spend hours pumping these fish full of digestive enzymes and sucking the nutrients out until nothing is left but scales and bones. (laughs) Next up, we have a story on enterprising desert beetles. The beetles we're talking about here have a special adaptation for collecting water in extremely dry temperatures. So how do they do it, Dave? This is a beetle called the Namib desert beetle. And what's really fascinating about this animal is it's got this really intricate pattern of water attracting and water repelling molecules on its wings. And what it does is it angles its body into the wind and it uses this pattern of molecules on its wings to actually gather water from the air. Turns out the water in the air is attracted to these molecules on its wings, and the molecules on the wings actually help the water stay attached to the beetle, and the beetle is able to drink the water up. So in this study, the researchers actually tried to emulate this very intricate design using carbon nanotubes. What does this device look like? Well, carbon nanotubes, as the name implies, are very tiny cylindrical structures composed solely of carbon. In this device the researchers constructed, they basically created a forest of these nanotubes. They're about one centimeter high. And they're trying to really mimic what the Namib desert beetle does with its wings. They created a layer 
of molecules that draws water into the forest, and also a layer that traps this water once it's been drawn in. And this is all done without any sort of external power source. How much water can this tiny sponge squeeze out of the air? Well, the researchers found when they created a forest that was about 0.25 square centimeters, so pretty tiny, it pulled in more than a quarter of its own weight in 11 hours. And this is in a pretty dry setting. When it was placed in more humid surroundings, its efficiency increased and it collected about 80% of its weight in just 13 hours. So how feasible would it be to scale something like this up? It turns out carbon nanotubes are incredibly expensive. So you shouldn't expect to be able to roll out a mat of these guys in a desert anytime soon and survive the night. And researchers are actually saying that they're so expensive that perhaps we should look to other materials that might be much more cheap to manufacture. But the important thing here is the proof of concept, that we can actually do this, that we can actually create a device that sucks water from the air. And this could be really valuable for communities that live in very dry areas. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why sunlight could make you high. Also a story about why the bright center of a galaxy has gone dark. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how journal bundling practices are causing some universities to pay much more for scientific journals than other universities do. Also a story about a controversial plan to study 100,000 babies in the U.S. from birth to the time that they are 21 years old. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.